Welcome to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans and Jeff Shade, a show that simplifies the complexities of investments, taxes, retirement, and more so you can discover how to better sustain yourself and your wealth for years to come. Brian is a CPA with 30 years experience and a financial advisor, which brings a unique perspective to the financial world. This show is brought to you by Madrona Financial and CPAs, home of the Rooted Wealth Plan. Want a retirement plan designed to last 30 plus years? Go to madronafinancial.com and click Get Started to see what the Rooted Wealth Plan can do for you. And now, here are your hosts, Brian Evans and Jeff Shade. Thank you so much. Welcome to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans, the show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you sustain yourself and your wealth for 30 plus years. On today's show, we're going to be discussing five financial pitfalls your estate planning attorney may have missed. Also, how to get into real estate if you're looking to retire and you want out of the stock and bond market. My name's Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions, but the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Brian Evans, CEO and President of Madrona Financial and CPAs. Brian, how are you doing today? Today. I'm doing great. Thanks, Jeff. Always glad to hear that, Brian. I hope our listeners are doing well today, too. Brian, as I understand it, Paul Walker, the guy from the original Fast and Furious movie franchise, has passed away at 40 years old, but he had an estate worth around $25 million. Now, he had a will and a trust, but apparently that just wasn't enough. His estate still went through a long and difficult process in the courts. Brian, if he had all the right documents, why was it so difficult to settle his estate? Well, because the estate documents weren't up to date. I was thinking about this uh, when we were preparing for this, and I was going to talk about, you know, if you have a up-to-date. I never, I don't even ask people, do you have a, a will or a living trust? I ask them, do you have a recent up-to-date will mm-hmm. or living trust? Because that's the, the key thing here. I mean, everybody has an estate plan. Sometimes their plan is nothing. Right. So that's, I guess that's a plan. <laughs> right. But, yeah, and, and so, okay, he sat down when he was 28 because the thing was 12 years old, and he died when he was 40. So he put together a will when he was 28, and a lot of things changed for Mr. Walker between the age of 28 and 40, a lot of things. But the one thing that did not change was his will. So Houston, we have a problem here. So generally speaking, most of the people I talk to, if they have a will or living trust, I'm pretty sure that maybe it hasn't been front of mind, and the document is often very old. I mean, I've got 80-something-year-old clients. They will literally bring me a 50-year-old will. Right. And I'm like, whoa, okay, this is not compliant. Mm -hmm. It's not accurate. Very often, the beneficiaries are completely wrong. Maybe they thought something when they were 30 or 40, but they don't feel the same way at 80. Maybe those people aren't around. Maybe they can't handle money. Maybe there's been a falling out. Maybe there's been some remarriages. Life happens. And so if your will or, or living trust isn't up to date like Mr. Walker's wasn't, then you leave a mess. And again, if it's not up to date, not compliant, now courts are going to decide for you what's going to happen to your legacy and so forth. And that's just not a good thing. I mean, certainly uh, you have your assets. You you want them to go where you want them to go. And once you're gone, there's no take backs. There's no redos. You can't go back and have an amended will after you've passed away. There's You can amend a tax return. You can't amend a will after you're gone. You can while you're alive. And so that's what I'm trying to encourage people to do, that even if you're thinking, well, I have a plan, I I did a trust, and I'll have people say this all the time, I I think it's only a couple years old, but I brought it in, I'm looking at it and go, it's been 18 years. Mm. And they're like, really? (laughs) Boy, time flies. Yeah, yeah, you've got 18-year-old trust here, and 
irrevocable living trust and you think it's three or four or five years old and it's not, you know, time flies. And so I just want to encourage people, take a look at when this was your, your will or living trust was done. And if it's starting to get a little stale, now would be a great time to fix that up. Brian, help me understand this uh, better as well as our listeners, too. What are the financial and the tax implications if we get this wrong? Well, there can be a, a lot of financial implications. I mean, most of my time I spend talking about this topic, I'm talking about non-financial, you know, the who's and the what's and the how's and all of that of your estate and what goes on there. But at the heart of it is finances. And so you can have some serious tax implications to doing it wrong. It reminds me of a a couple that put together their own plan. And I'll actually have two stories here. One that did their own plan and had a, a revocable living trust. One that had their own plan done up by themselves and they had the credit shelter trust provision and one that did not. And you think, okay, the one that did is obviously going to be a better outcome. Well, not necessarily. Because you see a lot of people, they might have heard that, okay, there's a possible estate tax out there. And you can avoid a lot of that estate tax with a particular paragraph or credit shelter trust, AB trust put in your will. And so let's say you said, well, I know about that. And you did your will a whole bunch of years ago, back when forever, it seemed like the exemption was $600,000, the federal exemption. And if you died with more than that, the rest of it, you know, got taxed very quickly at the 40, 50% rate. And so people knew that they put it in their will. I want 600,000 excluded and put into a trust when I die. Well, now that exemption is 12 million. And so they're sitting there with a, uh, I think I did it right. Well, you did it right, but you put the wrong number. You see, the law changed over and over and over and over in the years following. It went from 600 to a million to 2 million to 3 million. And then it went to, there was no estate tax one year. The year George Steinbrenner died, the Yankees went to his kids and the, the estate paid no estate tax. It was good timing. They probably uh, gave him a cocktail that had something bad in it. Dad, you got to go. <laughs> the Steinbrenners. And then after that, it changed. It's going to change again in, in a couple of years by statute. So just that one item, that one thing, we're, we're talking potentially millions and millions of dollars from one item not being updated in your will. And for the people that don't even know what I'm talking about, then well, I did my will. I don't remember anything about what you're talking about, Brian. Well, I suggest you go to an estate planning attorney, talk to them about it. They will know what it is and get that in there and consider the Washington estate tax and the federal estate tax, uh, the tax on the value of all of your assets when you pass away. There are so many things you can do to save, and I'm not talking saving 10% or you know, the $10 off coupon, savings, savings, savings. I'm talking hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. This is big stuff and probably don't want to do that yourself. I could probably save some money doing my own surgery, but yeah, there's some things you shouldn't do by yourself. <laughs> and this would be, I would, I would put this one in that category, but you should get it done. You can put it off, put it off, put it off. And as I mentioned earlier, Jeff, everybody has a plan. You know, your plan might be, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to spend a dime. I'll be dead. You all can figure it out after I'm gone. I don't really care. That could be your plan. And that's, that's your prerogative. But I would suspect that most people listening to a show called Growing Your Wealth do not think that way. If you did, you wouldn't bother to listen to anybody's advice. You just, because I don't care. I'm just going to take it with me. I'm going to be the richest man in the graveyard and take it all with me. And, and my hearse is going to be pulling a U-Haul or whatever. Mm-hmm. But most people care about their legacy and don't want to have that happen to them. 
Brian, once your trust is set up, does it matter where your assets are? Oh, it sure does, because we're talking about wills and revocable living trusts. And I just met with a couple. They came in and they said, you know, we had this done quite a while ago and we're not sure uh, what we have. I said, do you have a will or living trust? And they I don't know. Okay, show me what you got. And they showed me two documents. They had the durable power of attorney and the health care directive. I said, well, where's the will or living trust? They said, well, it's right there. I said, no, no, that's that's not it. Oh, well, this is what they gave us. I said, well, uh, you're going to have to go back to the attorney and, and find out what they did for you because it's not here. And he said, well, I think we have a trust. And I'm like, okay, if you have a revocable living trust, I can tell you it's not going to work. And they go, well, how do you know that? I said, because I'm looking at your statements and they are not in the name of the trust. They're in your name. You're going through probate. You think you're not. And you go, well, were we supposed to do something? <laughs> well, yeah, you go home, and if you still have the notebook they gave you, it's probably next to some old textbooks from college or something in a bookcase somewhere, and you paid all the money to get the documents drawn, and this is most people, by the way. Almost everybody I run into that has a revocable living trust to avoid probate, their estate's going to go through probate because of what I'm about to say. Because in that notebook, if you open up... It will say in big letters, you need to take some action. You need to retitle your assets. You need to retitle your house, your investment accounts. You know, you don't have to retitle your car or your clothes or anything like that, you know. But you do have to retitle all your real estate, financial assets, and, and, and other assets. If you don't, you're going through probate. And so all this work and, you know, probate, okay, now i got to go through the courts. It's going to take a long time. It can be very expensive. People can put up a fight. Assets don't transfer quickly. Maybe if your stuff's not up to date, you've got tax problems. It's public. It's not private anymore. So everybody gets to see what you have and where it's going and all that stuff. So uh, that can be a big problem. So I just want to put this out there. And uh, I hope I, I scared you a little bit, at least enough to go look in that folder, that, that notebook. Typically, attorneys give you a hard notebook with your documents and open it up and see, did I do the things it said I needed to do? And I would say that's the biggest problem I see with people that think they have it figured out, but they don't. Brian, before we keep going, I want to take a moment and invite our listeners to give us a call so that they can request their rooted wealth analysis and double check that their assets are structured in harmony with their estate plan. If you're listening right now, you want to make sure your assets and plan are set up correctly, then call 833-673-7373 and request your rooted wealth analysis. Once again, that number is 833-673-7373. It's not going to cost you a dime, but it could be just what you need to help you achieve your financial goals. Now, you must have at least $500,000 of investable assets to qualify, but those who call and are qualified as a bonus, we're also going to be sending you out Brian's new book, Seven Steps to a Successful Retirement at No Cost. That number one more time, 833-673-7373. That's 833-673-7373. Brian, the late actor Philip Seymour Hoffman left everything to the mother of his children. By the way, they were not married, and he created a massive tax bill in his $34 million estate. How could that have been avoided? There's a lot of things that could have been done. First, if he was married, there would be an additional, if it was today, I don't know when he died, but there'd be an additional, say, $12 million to avoid the estate tax at 40%. That's, that's close to $5 million right there. So that, that's a layup, basically. You know, he had 
children, and, and if he wanted to leave it to them, he could do some multi-generational planning, generation skipping, trust, that kind of thing. So he could have protected money that way. It sounds like the money probably wasn't protected at all. So you're basically saying, all right, you're the mother of my kids. Now you're the CEO of a $34 million estate that, because I didn't do some stuff right, is really maybe a $20 million estate, not 34. And oh, by the way, you've got to come up with all of the money to pay the estate tax within nine months. Now, this probably went to court, uh, probate, things are all over the place, and dealing with all that stuff. And then finally somebody says, well, we got to do valuations. So valuations are ordered. It's tough to get people out there these last couple of years. Took some time. Your CPA finally gets contact and you say, well, you, you only have a month to file this return. Well, I don't have everything. And then everything comes in and goes, oh, it's $34 million, and, and our, our state tax is enormous. Uh, how much time do I have? Well, you have a month. You have to come up with that. Well, how am I supposed to sell all this stuff in a month? Uh, good luck. You're not going to. And so now you got to fire sale stuff and not get the $34 million because you're fire sailing and scrambling there. And this is all given to somebody who is not trained as a CEO of a company or an investment advisor. You probably get my drift here, Jeff, that right. a, a complete fiasco occurred with Mr. Hoffman there uh, after he passed away because he just didn't put the time into getting it right. And most people think, well, you know, I have all this money, and if I die and I leave it to somebody, everything will be fine, won't it? I'm like, no, it won't. And especially when you're leaving it to people that, that aren't trained and experienced in handling money, they're probably not going to get things right. They're probably going to do things very wrong because emotions are going to play in, fear. If you have a will, uh, people get to know what you have and where you left it, where the assets are, and then the sharks come out and the scams come out and the people with their hands out might come out and that kind of thing, and then it's just a complete disaster. So that's kind of what happened with, with him. I, I don't know all the details, but I can sure fill in a lot of them. I kind of know a lot of what probably went on. Brian, earlier you talked about a generational skipping tax strategy. I know that you know how to do it, but can you explain to our listeners what's involved with that? Yeah, I will uh, explain some basics on that. This is an incredibly complicated area of the, of the law, but it's one that um, most people don't know a whole lot about. The common misconception I hear is people say, well, I can only give 10000 a year to my kids or you know, it's 15 or 18 or whatever, and my kids and grandkids, and that's all I'm allowed to give. And I'm like, well, that's not exactly true. You can give any amount you want. You just may have to file a gift tax return, and the tax on that will be zero for most gifts. And it may affect, there's an implication here, if you have a large estate, it can affect things down the road. But for a lot of people, they can really give about as much as they want and have absolutely no estate tax effect, federally speaking, or state, state of Washington speaking. And they can do that. So what I've also seen a lot of people do is when they have assets that they know are going to grow in value or believe they're going to grow in value, they can form a limited liability company or a limited partnership and they can gift. They can gift assets before they've gone way up in value to generationally. And then the appreciation now 
is to the grandchild, not to you and your taxable estate. And so that's a way to transfer assets that are going to grow. You say, well, maybe I don't want to transfer assets to two-year-old Tommy or, or his sister who's six or whatever. It's like, you know, because they're going to turn 18 and get those assets. Well, well, no, you can have control. You can have a limited partnership, for instance. You can have 99% to the general partners and you own the 1% limited partner share. So in a limited partnership, 99% is owned by limited partners and 1% by the general partner. And when a vote comes up, you go, okay, it's time to vote. Um, by the way, 99% of you don't have a vote. I have the only one mm-hmm. and I vote to do this. And they might say, well, we vote to have you distribute and sell the asset and give us our money. And I'm like, okay, but your vote doesn't count because you're not the general partner. So there's control. You can maintain control. There's a lot of things you can do, getting things out of your estate, uh, using the gifting rules to your advantage, setting up trust to help manage assets to people that you don't know if they're going to manage. And so there's there's a lot to that that one could go over. But just want to let you know that you know this is why we do what we do here. It's part of our planning process, our seven steps to successful retirement. Two of the steps is what I just talked about mm-hmm. that I don't talk about as much as the other ones. We talk about growth and cash flow and security and real estate a lot on the show and charitable gifting strategies. But we also talk about gifting while you're alive, which is what I just covered. And then the legacy when you're not alive, which we covered earlier today. Brian, you talked about Philip Seymour Hoffman, who was not married to the mother of his children. How do you typically handle the financial part of an estate plan for a couple, let's say that in their second or maybe even their third marriage? Yeah, that's a big one because that's you know more and more common, whether a death of a spouse or divorce or whatever. And one of the kind of curt things I'll, I'll ask somebody who doesn't have it done is I'll say, well, and they're going, well, it'll be fine. You know, I'm, I'm not I don't really want to do a state plan. And I'm like, OK, as long as you're OK, leaving a whole bunch of your assets to your kid's future ex-spouse. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what? My kid's not even married. Well, what are the chances they'll get married someday? Well, pretty high. What's the chances they might get divorced someday? Oh, 50-50, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, you were. Statistically, it's 50-50, so there's at least a 50-50 chance that your kids, uh, maybe it's your son, your your son's future ex-wife who you haven't even met is going to get a whole bunch of your estate. I'm like, oh, I I don't like that. So when I put it that way, you know, a light often comes on. Oh, I see what you're saying. So if I just leave them assets and it's part of their estate and they get divorced, she's going to say, well, half of that's mine. So half of my assets went to somebody I haven't even met mm-hmm. that, that isn't very friendly with my own kid who I meant it to go to in the first place. And I wanted to go to his kids, but now it goes to her and she gets remarried. And then that husband says, let's take the money and forget your kids and give them to my kids. Right. So maybe you're leaving money to your future, your son's future ex-wife's husband's new husband's kids. <laughs> when you put it that way, that probably doesn't sound too good. And it's like, no, I don't want that. Well, that can happen. This stuff can happen. Bad things happen with your money if you don't plan ahead. Now, there's so much you can do through trust and proper planning ahead of time and, and just handle all the what ifs. Uh, you can leave money to your new spouse in a trust and they can live on the income. And then when they pass away, it doesn't necessarily go to their kids. It goes to where you want it to go, perhaps in another trust that's established at that time so that your kid gets the beneficiary, your grandkids are the beneficiary 
of the income and or principal. And so all of this can be established. You don't even have to set up these trusts. You just have to say, if this happens, then set up these trusts to accomplish these goals. And so that's, that's some of the beauty of a proper estate plan, having that security and peace of mind and know that really bad things aren't going to happen if something bad happens to you. Uh, inevitably, we're all going to pass away. So uh, I think anybody listening to the show should consider, do you have all the what-ifs established in your will or revocable living trust? And Brian, in my opinion, I mean, marriage is a spiritual thing. It's an emotional thing. But I think uh, most importantly, and I think the takeaway here is that merging two people is merging two businesses, so to speak. There's the financial aspect of this, too, and that cannot go ignored. Brian, for all of our listeners who are joining us today and they want to ensure that their estate plan is properly funded so that your legacy unfolds on your terms, listen up. This is for you. I want you to dial 833-673-7373 right now and request your rooted wealth analysis at no cost. You must have at least $500,000 or more of investable assets to qualify. But when you call, you're going to get a friendly voice on the other end of the line who will gather some basic information so that your local trusted Madrona advisor from Madrona Financial and CPAs will be able to call you back early next week. This analysis is just an open conversation intended to help you uncover financial blind spots or what we like to call shallow roots and help you discover potential solutions so that your assets pass efficiently to your beneficiaries without paying more than needed to the IRS. Remember, even the mightiest of trees can fall if their roots aren't deep enough. That's why the Rooted Wealth Analysis is so very important to you. We can help you grow deep financial roots so that you're better prepared for future financial storms. And as a bonus, qualified callers will receive a copy of Brian's book, Seven Steps to a Successful Retirement, at no cost. Call Madrona Financial and CPAs right now and request your Rooted Wealth Analysis. That number is 833-673-7373, 833-673-7373. One call could make all the difference. If you're just joining us, this is Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. My name is Jeff Shade, and we just finished discussing financial pitfalls that may be found in your estate plan. If you want to hear the show again, don't worry, we are a podcast. Simply go to wherever you get your podcasts and search for Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. You'll get this show and weekday takeaways so that you can stay on top of your wealth and how to grow it. We're going to take a quick break when we come back. We'll be discussing how to get into real estate if you're about to retire and you want out of the stock and bond market. Stay tuned. Growing Your Wealth will be right back with even more ways to help sustain yourself and your wealth for years to come. Tired of only getting half the story? That's why it's so important to get your financial information from a CPA and an advisor like Brian Evans. Now let's get back to some of the most comprehensive financial information around. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial and CPAs. In this segment, we're going to be talking about how to get into real estate if you're about to retire and want some of your money out of the stock and bond market. And Brian, I've talked to a lot of people who are getting ready to retire. And when I talk about real estate, they say, well, it's, it's too late. I'm just too old to get into real estate. What do you say to that pushback, so to speak? Well, there's a lot of reasons why someone would not be able to get into real estate. When I compare the stock market to a business, you know, certainly in retirement, you know, just, well, to back up a little bit there, where does most wealth get created? Well, for my clients, most wealth was created through their wage, working for someone, or their business when they had their own business, or their real estate, investment real estate, or some combination of those three. 
Now, I understand there's other ways to make money, but you might be thinking, well, didn't they get rich in the stock market? I'm like, well, I don't think so because most people, when they're graduating university at, say, 23 years old, aren't starting out with a stock portfolio. They have nothing. They might have less than nothing. They have student debt. They have to earn money at their job, their business, create it in other ways to eventually buy stock. And so I don't know a lot of people that started out with stock, and you know, I, I suppose you can get your money through inheritance, but that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's not part of this conversation. So so given that uh, it comes from those places, when you're retired, uh, you're saying, well, I like my business, but I sold my business or I didn't have a business, but I kind of participated in business returns through the stock market. That's how you get into a large business. You, know, you can be a part owner of it by buying stock. Same thing with real estate. You can be a part owner of real estate without having to go out and buy it yourself. So a lot of people, though, that are thinking about real estate that I talk to are thinking about buying their own real estate. And we got some pitfalls there. First, you're maybe at an age where that doesn't make a lot of sense. Real estate takes a lot of time sometimes to increase in value. Now you have to deal with tenants. You're, you're a landlord, perhaps. You got to go out and get a loan. Well, interest rates are really high right now. You got to find property that pencils out. That's very difficult to do. And I say pencil out, I mean makes a profit after paying all your expenses and your mortgage payment. So it may not cash flow for years and years and years. And you may not have time on your side. Another thing is, well, I really like self-storage, but I have X number of dollars and I can't just go out and buy a self-storage or I really like apartment buildings in Texas, but I can't afford a 300 unit apartment building, you know, so that there's access. There's what happens if something happens to me. Uh, There's management company fees. There's so much that you go, uh, you might go, oh. This whole real estate you know, concept is making my head hurt. And so, you know, there are ways to get into real estate. But first, got to look at all the pitfalls of somebody investing in real estate. And Brian, I think most people, when they think of real estate, as you said, they think of the active real estate. But if you buy rental properties and you're 70 years old, remember, you're buying a job. It's going to take a lot of work and you may not want to have a job in your 70s. So let's talk a little bit more about the passive real estate opportunities here. I'm glad you framed it up that way, Jeff, because that's how I, I talk to people. They say, well, I hear people really make a lot of money in real estate, so I'm going to go out and buy some real estate. And I'll ask them, well, what do you know about the real estate? Well, not much. I just know it goes up. I'm like, well, have you ever been a landlord? No, it doesn't seem that hard. Just get a good tenant, you know, get them in there. And you collect your rents. And uh, are you very handy? No, not real handy. I just hire that stuff out. And I'm like, mm. Okay, well, real estate is a business. It is a profession. There are people that are good at the real estate profession and people that are not good at real estate profession. And if you're not good at it, you may be lucky and make some money. But my experience is you're not going to do well if you're not good at that profession. And that means you're good at finding the right tenants. You're, you're good at management. You're good at being a landlord. You're, you raise rents when they need to be raised. You're handy. You're, you know how to buy. You know where to buy. You know which property to buy, which not to buy. All of that stuff goes into it. And the timing is critical. So, you know, it's, it's not for everybody to be an active landlord. And, and certainly that's what we work with our clients on is helping them be passive. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of passive real estate choices out there in a lot of different structures. So to me, one of the most important things, if you're going to invest in passive real estate, is the structure, the entity type of the real estate that you're buying. Brian, you talked about the structure of the entities that you're buying. Can you elaborate on that, different types of real estate that you would buy passively? Yeah, most people, if you ask them, what are the ways you can buy real estate? And they say, well, I can go out and purchase it on my own, or I can invest in a REIT. 
a real estate investment trust. And those are the two ways I can get into real estate. Well, there's many other ways, and I want to caution anybody on REITs because I just had this conversation. In fact, I just, Jeff, this week I had two seminars on Delaware Statutory Trusts using a 1031 exchange. Both of them were sold out. Both of them had waiting lists. Mm-hmm. I had 80 people there, accredited investors, talking about this topic, and I could have filled a whole lot more people in the room. So it's definitely a big topic out there. And I wasn't talking about them going out and buying new real estate. I wasn't talking about publicly traded REITs. I was talking about other ways to get into passive real estate. And so, you know, this one person came up to me and, well, why can't I just buy REITs? You know, I can own real estate that way. I said, yeah, you can. But let me talk about why REITs failed, publicly traded REITs failed in the year 2022. And they did. They got hammered. They were down almost 30%. And when I say they... I'm talking about the index. If you look at a Vanguard index, Fidelity index of real estate, you'll see, wow, 25, 30% negative returns in 2022. That's terrible. And so people say, well, why would I invest in passive real estate when it did so poorly? Well, that was publicly traded REITs. Private non-traded REITs had a very different outcome. In fact, a lot of them went up in value. Why is that? Don't they own the same thing? Yeah, I'm talking apples to apples. I'm talking REITs that are invested in the exact same thing. And and wait a second, Brian. So you're saying a publicly traded REIT that invested in apartment buildings versus a private non-traded REIT that invested in apartment buildings had very dissimilar returns, even though they're in the same stuff? I'm like, yep, they sure did. Why is that? Well, if you're investing in a publicly traded REIT, one of the advantages you might think going in is that, you know, if I want out of this, I can just put in a sell order and they have to give me my money at at whatever the stock is trading at within three days. So this is great. I can get out at any time. I want that. I don't want that other one. I, I can't do that. I can only get out quarterly and they have limitations on how much shareholders can pull out each quarter. I don't want that. And so you go out and you buy the public charity REIT and it's getting hammered uh, mid-2022 and you go, oh, I want out of this. And so you put in a sell order and you go, wow, that thing's just dropping like a rock because everybody's putting in sell orders. I should have done this a week or a month ago. And you're panicking, you put in your sell order and you sell really low. And that's what happened because they were too liquid. You know, the the operators of this can't find good deals on real estate in three days. They had to run, essentially run on public trader REITs. And that caused valuations to drop dramatically. The underlying real estate wasn't changing, that rents weren't changing, but the valuation assigned to them was because it's a publicly traded stock. So that was the problem with public traded REITs when things were going bad and interest rates were going up. Private non-traded REITs, thankfully, had limitations on liquidity that prevented there from being a run and a forced sale, a fire sale of real estate or anything like that. They can plan for how much it gets distributed out of the fund. So they didn't have that same issue, generally speaking, because of those limitations. So something that my clients maybe, or you as a listener, maybe thought was an advantage, liquidity, actually was a disadvantage as it is related to real estate. So, Brian, as you mentioned, you can buy into a REIT, whether it be public or private, but let's talk about the Delaware Statutory Trust in terms of passive real estate. Now, can you just buy into a Delaware Statutory Trust? No. (laughs) And I tried to make it kind of entertaining when I was giving my speech on DSTs. I said, you know, you may be listening to me and you go, well, yeah, I I would like to sell my rental real estate. And gee, Brian, you just told me I can do a 1031 exchange. 
I can sell it. I can buy another property. But I don't want to buy another property because I want to retire from being a landlord. But gee, Brian, you just also said I cannot do a 1031 exchange into a real estate partnership, a real estate corporation, a real estate LLC, a publicly traded REIT, real estate investment trust, or a private non-traded REIT. I can't do that. They don't qualify as real estate. Why is that? They all own real estate, Brian. Well, because that kind of real estate is held in a company. You're not buying a REIT as a company that owns real estate. It's not real estate. A DST is real estate, direct ownership, a fractional interest in directly into real estate through the Delaware Statutory Trust. So DSTs qualify for 1031 exchange. These other asset classes do not. So DSTs are something invested into by people that own investment real estate and want to sell it for whatever reason. Generally, it's to get out of the landlord business and they want in a passive real estate. So DSTs are the solution for that. Because I had one one guy say, why can't I just go into a REIT? Well, because it doesn't qualify for a 1031 exchange. You're going to pay the tax. I don't want to pay the tax. I got huge gains on my real estate. I said, exactly. That's where a Delaware statutory trust comes in. And he said what I wanted to have communicated. He said, well, isn't a DST kind of like a small REIT, but it qualifies for 1031 where a REIT doesn't? I said, bingo. That's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would rather 1031 into a REIT because they're more diversified, but that's not av- available because they don't qualify. But DSTs do. And the way we get our diversification through DSTs, as I explained to the group, let's say you're selling a million-dollar piece of real estate and you'd have a 900 plus taxable gain if you just sold it and took the cash. You could move it into, say, four different DSTs. One owns an apartment buildings. One owns student housing. One has net lease properties. One has self-storage. You can diversify geographically by property type, have a professionally managed newer property, never get a capital call, defer or completely eliminate the gains from taxation, receive monthly checks going forward, not have to worry about getting calls in the middle of the night. There are a lot of advantages to doing a DST in the right situation. Brian, as you said, there are a lot of advantages, and I do want to talk about the steps of uh, getting into a DST in just a moment. But as with most things at Madrona Financial, we usually lead with the reasons why you would not want to do something. In particular, with a Delaware Statutory Trust, why would you not want to consider a Delaware Statutory Trust if you're an active landlord selling? That's a great question, Jeff. Yes, we always like to make sure we mention why someone would not do something because we want to get away from the, well, Brian, that sounds too good to be true. And I was taught by my parents, if it sounds too good to be true, (laughs) it probably is. And so, and you're probably right because there are many reasons why you would not do a DST. The four that uh, I talked about at my seminars. And oh, by the way, if you're interested in coming to a future DST seminar and you are an accredited investor, meaning a net worth of at least a million dollars outside of your principal residence, and you have investment real estate that you're considering selling in the near future, let us know and we'll put you on the list. uh, So when that opens up, we can get you into the next seminar. So just want to mention that. But uh, one of the reasons is, is I always call DSTs, my catchy phrase for them is that they are uh, not a get rich strategy. They're a stay rich strategy. Meaning that people say, well, can't I make a better rate of return if I personally buy real estate and fix it up myself and all that stuff? I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. you can. Well, why would I do a DST if I'm doing that? Well, you shouldn't. You should keep doing what you're doing. 
But uh, that's like coming to me when you're 70 years old and saying, well, Brian, why should I retire? Won't I have more money if I keep working until I'm 90 than I will if I retire? I'm like, yeah, you'll have more money. (laughs) You may have a better return if you keep working on your rentals and don't put it into passive DSTs. Your outcome will be more because you're continuing to work. I'm just dealing with people that are saying, huh, enough's enough. I want to retire. I want to retire from my job. I want to retire from being a landlord. Maybe it's not that much work, but it's enough. And what is my limited, most limited resource? Hmm, I'm 70. I would say time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> time is my most limited resource. Is uh, net worth uh, your limiting resource? Not really. I'm not going to spend all my money. Okay, you are a candidate for Delaware Statutory Trust. But that's one reason not to. If you're 40 years old building your real estate empire, please don't do a Delaware Statutory Trust. Keep building your empire. Another reason why someone would not do it is that they don't have much of a gain. My story on that is I had this guy, I've been listening to you for years. I'm selling my commercial property and I want to do a DST. I said, well, hold on. How did you acquire it? Well, I inherited it last year. Well, did you inherit it from a person? Yeah. Well, you got to step up in basis then. You don't have any gain or not very much. If you don't have much of a gain, don't bother with the 1031 exchanges. Just pay the tax. It's not going to be very much. So if the gain isn't that much, sometimes it's better just to pay the tax. Another reason you would not do it is, you know, I have this property. I don't want to pay the tax, but I need to sell it and I want to buy a vacation home or I want to do something with the money. Like, well, then sell it, pay the tax, and do that something with the money. Oh, yeah. See, DSTs aren't liquid. You can't just go, well, I've been in the DST for a year. I, I want to sell it now. I don't want to wait for year four to 10 when it's going to be sold. I want to sell it now. I need the money for something. Well, if you think you're going to need the money, then don't tie it up. Pay the tax. I know that's not fun, but uh, if you need liquidity, that's a reason not to do a DST. So those are some of the the basic reasons why someone would not do a DST. And so we wanted to cover that too, as well as why someone would do a DST. Brian, before we keep going, I want to take a moment and invite our listeners to give us a call so that they can request their rooted wealth analysis and discover how they may be able to diversify assets outside of the stock and bond market. If you're listening right now and you want to potentially add some real estate or alternative investments to your portfolio, then give us a call at 833-673-7373 and request your Rooted Wealth Analysis. That number, once again, 833-673-7373. It won't cost you a dime, but it could be just what you need to help achieve your financial goals. Now, you must have at least $500,000 or more in investable assets to qualify. But those who call and are qualified as a bonus, we're also going to be sending you out Brian's new book, Seven Steps to a Successful Retirement at No Cost. That number one more time is 833-673-7373, 833-673-7373. Brian, just a moment ago, we talked about some of the reasons why you would not want to do a Delaware Statutory Trust. Let's talk about some of the reasons why you would want to consider a DST. That is, going from a 1031 exchange into a Delaware statutory trust. Yeah, the DST discussion is just part of a bigger plan. So I kind of wanted to frame this up for people that are thinking, hmm, what's he really getting at here? And, And what I'm getting at when I'm talking about DSTs and some of these other topics like that is that a vast majority of people that come in have their money in three basic different markets. There are six. They only have three. The three that they have are cash and cash equivalents, stock market, and bond market. 
that's where most people that we talk to have all of their investable assets. So what we're adding to the equation and and what we're talking about a lot today is the real estate aspect because a lot of my clients own investment real estate, whether it's active or passive. There's insurance company products, annuities, for instance, uh, fixed index annuities uh, that can provide guaranteed lifetime cash flow. And so that's kind of the security part of the portfolio. And then there's all the alternative investment strategies, which could include a Delaware statutory trust, private equity, which can own real estate or other kinds of assets, many other areas there that I don't have time to cover. So recapping that, again, people come in, they have cash, stocks, and bonds, and they say, well, I'd kind of like a more diversified portfolio. I would like to have some safe money. I would like to have some real estate. I would like to have some alternative investments in with my stocks, bonds, and cash. And that, to me, is a properly diversified portfolio. So if you can picture someone coming in with three pieces on their pie chart and leaving our office once we've gone through the analysis with six pieces in the pie chart, they they feel a lot more comfortable because now they've addressed their cash flow plan, their growth plan, liquidity plan, tax savings, et cetera, uh, security, all of that. So they've addressed everything by having the six areas. So this is one of them. And this is a solution that, as we're talking about, for people that own investment real estate. And and one of the things I always start with is I, I ask, what's your cash flow? How much are you actually putting in your pocket from your investment real estate? What percentage of the fair market value of your real estate are you putting in your pocket each year after all expenses? And that one stumps people. You would think it wouldn't, but I rarely get the right answer because I can look at their tax return. I already know what the right answer is. I know what it is. I've computed it very often before I've asked the question, and invariably they will tell me it's much, much higher than what I'm seeing on their tax return. So, Brian, if people want to investigate uh, using a Delaware statutory trust as one of those uh, six investment options, let's talk about the steps to doing that. Let's say that someone says, wow, I just sold my property. I got the cash in the bank. I'm going to call Brian about this Delaware statutory trust. Now, you can't just do that, can you? Well, you can, but what I'm going to tell you isn't going to make you feel good. Right. I'm going to tell you, you blew it. (laughs) I'll say it nicer than I just said it, but uh, you blew the uh, ability to do a Section 1031 exchange. You must hire a qualified intermediary before you sell your property, before it closes, because if that check hits your bank account or you have access to that money and it didn't go to the trustee of the uh, qualified intermediary first, you can't do a tax-deferred 1031 exchange anymore. So that's the first step is to contact you. I would imagine that you have QIs that people can take advantage of. Absolutely. We take care of everything. There's four entities involved in a DST. There's you. You have a property that you're going to sell. There's a qualified intermediary that has to be hired. There's the financial advisor that's required to be part of the DST process. And then there's a sponsor that provides the properties for us to invest in. So those are the four entities that have to be, that's an SEC requirement for a financial advisor to be part of this thing, and that's what we do. And our role is to make sure you're hooked up with the right qualified intermediary to get to know the sponsors and their properties and to vet both of those, to do all the paperwork, the tax planning, the answer all the questions, make sure it goes smoothly. We do all the heavy lifting to make this happen. And so that's our part of the uh, Delaware Statutory Trust engagement. So I would think that even if you're thinking about a Delaware Statutory Trust, the first step would be to call 833-673-7373 and get in 
and, and get in and talk to somebody at Madrona Financial and CPAs about doing a DST. Then after that, you need a qualified intermediary, which you'll take care of. So let's talk about the moving forward process. If you say, okay, I want to do this Delaware Statutory Trust, there are properties and there are properties. How do you go about vetting those properties? Yeah, and I I like the way you frame that, Jeff, because when people come in, what what they're going to be surprised to hear is one of our roles is to try and disqualify Mm -hmm. you from doing our investment. Not that we don't want the business. We want to examine all the reasons why you maybe shouldn't do one. And if we find one of those, then we can say, all right, I just saved you a lot of time and worry. I don't recommend this for your situation, whatever that may be. And so I think that that helps somebody go, okay, you're not just going to pound us for a sale like everybody else in your industry seems to do. I said, no, no, we're actually, we require all of our advisors to try and disqualify to say why it doesn't make sense. And if we can't find a reason why, then okay, now we can look into the reasons why you should. So I just want to clarify that, uh, that our process is not a hard sell kind of thing. It's, it's kind of the opposite. We want everything to be a good fit or we shouldn't be doing it. Brian, once someone wants to do this Delaware Statutory Trust, I mean, there are a lot of properties out there. How do you go about finding the best property for the client's needs? You know, I was just interviewed by a huge publication that covers DSTs, and they asked me that same question, and I actually answered it a little different. I said, I start with the sponsor. It's more important to have a better manager and company than it is a particular property. Because I could have two different companies that are buying apartments and say, well, one apartment's prettier than the other one. I'm like, whoa, wait a second here. Who's running this? What is their track history? How did they do when times were bad? What is the internal fees? What has been their rate of return on other projects? Do they have experience? What's their exit strategy? We have 50 to 100 questions that we vet each property to from the sponsor standpoint. From there, we can look at the properties and say, okay, which kind of properties am I interested in? Which am I not? And why? So, for instance, we might have a net lease property and the tenant's Walgreens and Dollar General's. And another one might have a tenant and it's a surgical unit, a bunch of doctors. Well, I am not going to be interested in the doctor's one. I have tenant risk. They could be bad business people. I don't know them. Mm-hmm. I know Walgreens a good business has a good business thing. I I can look at their publicly, uh, you know, their public information, see how many billions of dollars a year in net profit they make, and I know that the leases that they're signing in the DSTs are, if if they're in the DST, are going to be guaranteed by their corporation. You know, I I can know this stuff going in, and I can say, well, I don't want to take the tenant risk with this one. Or in an inflationary environment, people have said, well, real estate's terrible. Uh, inflation's going up. And I'm like, well, wait a second. What happens to an owner of an apartment building, a self-storage or student housing when inflation's around? They said, well, don't rents go up? Yeah. How about their expenses if they have a fixed rate loan? How much do they go up? Hmm. None? Yeah. Now, what's the rest of this equation? Oh, all the rent increases go to the bottom line, and my real estate is even better than it was without inflation. I said, I know that sounds weird, but yeah, bingo. You know, the inflation actually helps certain kinds of real estate, so it can be a real good inflation hedge. So I'm, I'm just kind of nerding out on this, but you know, I could do this for hours, Jeff, mm-hmm. talking about all the vetting that goes on right. and, and the understanding. And Oh, and then I didn't say about states. Well, I have two that are the same. I, I One's in North Carolina and one's in Florida, and they're real close to each other or whatever, South Carolina and Florida. And, and you might go, well, 
what's the difference? Well, one of them's in a tax-free state and one isn't. Why don't we go with the tax-free one? Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. Or, you know, again, I, I could do this all day long, Jeff, but geography, the type of real estate, the sponsor, their track history and so forth, all are critical in vetting the, the right DSTs for you. And one other point that I want to make that I made at my seminar, are there hundreds or thousands of DSTs available at any given time? Uh, no. There are a lot of them, but most of them we have vetted out. We have said we don't want to buy them. We get down to about plus or minus 10 at any given time that we could say, yeah, we can look at this more closely. We like these. The rest of them we're like, nope, not interested. Uh, so there isn't thousands to pick from. We're going to narrow it down to a limited amount to look at. Brian, for all those who are listening to us and they want to invest in the real estate market so that you can enjoy more comprehensive diversification, listen up because this is for you. I want you to dial 833-673-7373 right now and request your rooted wealth analysis at no cost. You must have at least $500,000 or more of investable assets to qualify. When you call, you're going to get a friendly voice on the other end of the line who will gather some basic information from you so that your local trusted Madrona advisor from Madrona Financial and CPAs will be able to call you back early next week. Now, this analysis is just an open conversation. It's intended to help you uncover financial blind spots or what we like to call shallow roots and help you discover how to further diversify your assets so that you can potentially increase your returns while potentially lowering your risk. Remember, even the mightiest of trees can fall if their roots aren't deep enough. That's why the rooted wealth analysis is so very important to you. We can help you uncover those shallow financial roots and help you grow deeper financial roots so that you're better prepared for the future financial storms. And as a bonus, qualified callers are going to get a copy of Brian's book, Seven Steps to a Successful Retirement at No Cost. So call Madrona Financial and CPAs right now and request your rooted wealth analysis. That number once again, 833-673-7373. That's 833-673-7373. And remember, one call could make all the difference. Brian, another great information-packed show. I want to thank you for your time, but most importantly, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Don't miss a show by subscribing to the Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans podcast wherever you get your podcast. Until next week, for Brian, I'm Jeff Shade. Remember, stay well-rooted. No statements made during the Growing Your Wealth show should constitute tax, legal, or accounting advice. You should consult your own legal or tax professional on your individual information. Brian Evans and Madrona Financial Services is licensed to offer investment advisory services through Madrona Financial Services, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Insurance products are offered through Madrona Insurance Services, LLC, a licensed insurance agency and an affiliate of Madrona Financial Services. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Investors cannot invest directly into indexes. No investment strategy, including asset allocation and diversification, guarantees a profit or guarantees the avoidance of loss. Financial planning is an important tool that does not guarantee specific outcomes. DST investments are only available to accredited investors and offered solely through the issuer's offering documents. The DST sponsor determines whether to accept any individual subscription documents. Madrona Financial and CPAs is a registered trade name used singly and collectively for the affiliated entities Madrona Financial Services, LLC, Madrona, and Bauer Evans, Inc., PC. Bauer Evans. Investment advisory services are provided through Madrona. CPA services are provided through Bauer Evans.